Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. So welcome back, everybody. Here we are on another episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, and uh, I'm Mario Sakura here with the two TJs. How you doing, guys? Doing good. Could not be more excited to talk about Greece. <laughs> yes, we are. I, I would say we're taking a little shift in direction here uh, between our last podcast. We just finished five episodes on the Marvel comic universe, and now we are shifting into a completely different universe, uh, a universe of what the 50s were kind of like through the eyes of the disco era, uh, and talking about the movie Grease. Now, whose idea was this? Not mine. mine. This was TJ's. Yes, TJ, tell us, <laughs> tell us, TJ, why, why? So, so let me set up here what, what we're doing. So, uh, we did the Marvel movies. We're calling this a potpourri season. And then what we're doing is we're each picking two movies that we wanted to talk about through an Enneagram perspective. And this is one of the movies that TJ picked. And, uh, so TJ, tell us why you picked this movie. This is not a movie that I watched growing up. This is not a movie that I would name one of my longtime favorites didn't have the soundtrack neither did my older sister this this movie was not in my life in many ways but i absorbed through relationships and through female friends the fact that this movie is to many 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 women my age and younger what star wars and raiders of the lost ark were to me and the marvel movies i believe and i talked about this in our episode about thor ragnarok draw a lot from mythology and in many ways it can be argued that they are current unfolding mythology, Greece, I believe, fulfills a similar function. Usually for women, it isn't, like I said, it isn't my mythology, but it is a cultural touchstone. It is out there, and I'm very curious to unlock its secrets. Why has this spoken to so many people so consistently? And do you feel like you have an answer after watching it for the podcast? I wouldn't say that I have the definitive answer, but I certainly know the movie a lot better than I did before. And it has been really valuable and enlivening to spend some time focusing on it. And really, and I, you know, I put out a question on my Facebook page of, for anybody who watched and loved Greece growing up, what did you love about it? And it was interesting mm. to hear those answers come in and that'll be part of the discussion as well. So right. yeah, I do feel like I've got a much better sense of this movie and why it is beloved than I did before. So as we have talked about numerous times on this podcast, I'm a bit older than you guys. And uh, so I, I wouldn't say that this movie was a big part of my life, but I went to see it in the drive-in when it came out, as well as Grease 2, uh, oddly enough, probably the most unwatchable movie I've ever seen. Um, but I remember Grease well, not just as a movie, but as a cultural phenomenon. And it was. And particularly because this was coming right on the heels of Saturday Night Fever, also starring John Travolta, which, you know, meant that there were these two huge hits starring this same guy who had been a pretty popular TV actor leading up to this and two of the biggest soundtracks of all time. I don't know if anyone, any soundtracks have passed these movies yet, but I know that uh, Greece sold 38 million copies since it was released worldwide, and Saturday Night Fever probably sold even more. I don't remember exactly, but uh, so I do remember this, and I do remember the cultural phenomenon that was Greece. And were you in high school when it came out? Let's see, this was 78, yeah. so I was a uh, freshman or sophomore in high school. And what was that like? Like, did, I mean, we'll get into this, but uh, I'm very curious about that because ostensibly it's about high school in the 50s, but it came out in the yes. 70s. And I believe any period piece is just as much a reflection of the time that it was made as the time that it's set in. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this movie and at the risk of jumping ahead, it is pure nostalgia. But nostalgia, well, I guess as nostalgia is through a hazy lens of memory. And 
the perception of current times. Okay, so it was, you know, the 70s, the uh, mid, let's see, so 77, 78, it was still kind of an idealistic time, right? We were just coming out of Watergate, and there is a Richard Nixon joke in this, you know, about uh, one of you boys can grow up to be like Vice President Richard Nixon, with no knowing full well that he had fallen into disgrace by this point. But there was still an innocence in the country. And, and I know that's hard for a lot of people to understand, given that it's post-Watergate, post-Vietnam, you know, a lot of cynicism about government and the CIA and all that sort of stuff. But it was also the height of the disco era. And disco is a very idealistic, ignore the suffering, ignore the unpleasant party, have fun, look at the positive sort of thing. So it was very much still the zeitgeist, I think. Do you remember the popularity of it amongst classmates? Oh my gosh. Oh yes, a absolutely. This was a hugely popular movie. And to your point, uh, certainly more popular among the girls than the boys. The music was everywhere, right? And it was still, you were still hearing a lot of the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack on the radio as well. So it was John Travolta all the time, everywhere. And Olivia Newton-John was a huge star at this point, right? I mean, she was a star already. Uh, I forget when Let's Get Physical came out, but... Um, that was the I, early 80s. Early 80s, I thought so, right? So it was a bit later. That was the Jane Fonda movement. So it would have been a, a bit earlier. But still, she was a big, big star at this time. And uh, so, yeah, this was everywhere, right? Uh, people were lining up to see it. People were seeing it multiple times over and over again. Uh, it was a drive-in staple. And, um, you know, and that's reflected in the box office because this was a movie that was really constrained budget terribly but made a huge amount of money, right? It was a $6 million budget, and it ended up grossing worldwide over $365 million uh, by the time all was said and done. That, my friends, is a profitable, profitable movie, right? So, uh, and it does not count the uh, profits um, of the soundtrack, which were that and Saturday Night Fever, both produced by a movie-slash-music producer named Robert Stigwood, who became disgustingly wealthy off of these two soundtracks. So big, big stuff culturally at the time. And I'm sure that success has also continued to amplify the number of stage productions of Greece because it started as a play and it gets done all the time, particularly in high schools because it's about high school students. Yes, right. So TJ, why don't you give us a synopsis of Greece? Absolutely. So Greece, like I said, is based on the Broadway musical of the same name, which debuted in 1971. Greece is set in the late 1950s. Sandy Olson, played by Olivia Newton-John, and Danny Zuko, John Travolta, have had a summer romance. She's soon to fly back to Australia with her family. But not only does her family stay in the unnamed city where this takes place, Sandy enrolls in Rydell High for her senior year of high school, which is the exact same school that Danny attends. And somehow it's never come up in conversation that he goes to this high school. So they're surprised on the first day of class when they're brought face to face with each other. But before that happens, Danny's reunited with his friends, a leather jacket wearing gang called the T-Birds. Danny is the alpha of the group. Kaniki is the second in command, played by Jeff Conaway, and then the other guys are called Sonny, Duty, and Putsy. Sandy is introduced to a group of girls referred to as the Pink Ladies, who all wear pink sweaters that say the Pink Ladies on the back. The alpha of that group is Rizzo, played by Stockard Channing, and then there's Frenchie, Marty, and Jan. At the Pep Rally and Bonfire on the evening of the first day of school, Rizzo and the Pink Ladies bring Danny and Sandy face to face. They're elated to see each other, and then Danny succumbs to peer pressure and feigns indifference. Sandy's distraught and then soon gets together with Tom, a football player. Danny, sussing that Sandy likes athletes, tries a bunch of different sports, and when she sees him trip over a hurdle and go sprawling, she runs to comfort him, and they're reunited. A nationally televised music program does a broadcast from Rydell High with a dance contest. Danny and Sandy make it a good ways in before Sandy is whisked away by one of the other T-Birds, and Cha-Cha, the girlfriend of a rival gang member, dances with Danny and the two win the contest. And again, Sandy's distraught to be rebuffed. They make up, they go to the drive-in. Danny tries to grope Sandy. She storms off. Danny ends up driving Kaniki's car in his stead in a drag race against the head of that same rival gang, and he wins. Sandy watches this from a distance and comes up with a plan. Suddenly, the school year's over. 
And there's a carnival on school grounds, including full theme park rides and games. And Danny shows up wearing a Letterman sweater, which he earned by running track all year. Sandy shows up having shed her nice girl image, wearing a leather jacket, leather pants, with red painted nails, red lipstick, permed hair, hoop earrings, and smoking a cigarette. Danny immediately shucks his sweater and any pretense of being a nice guy. They do a musical number together. They get in Danny's car. They drive off literally into the sky as the classmates wave and sing about how they'll all stay together forever. Yeah, the flying car thing I had forgotten about and couldn't quite remember what, what, what purpose that served in, 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 in an otherwise so realistic movie, right? I mean, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that more. TJ and Gracias, so, uh, tell me, what was your reaction to <laughs> Greece? Well, so I did not grow up with really any connection to it. I did wedding videos for many years, and so every wedding reception, white people seem to really love the soundtrack to Greece. So every wedding is the Greece medley. Uh, I had never seen the film actually before before uh, watching it for this podcast. So I watched it a few days ago on a flight back. I had a gig in Tampa of all places. So I I watched it on my flight back and a couple rows in front of me was a screaming child. I mean, this kid screamed the whole way back. I had noise canceling headphones, so it wasn't too bad. I watched Grease and once the flight landed on balance, I decided that I much preferred the screaming child. I suffered through it for the sake of content, but it was not my uh, most favoritist movie ever. I don't know. I was never into theater in high school, so maybe the theater kids like it and people who are of uh, of your older persuasion, Mario, maybe who have some of that nostalgia with the 70s or even the 50s. Um, I, just, I just had a hard time connecting with it. And also... I felt like I was going to get me too just for watching this film. Uh, yeah, there's yeah, a whole yeah. lot of it does uh, not age well. What we would call problematic content, and uh, actually, I was yes. I was reading on the Wikipedia page about it, and I saw that in 2020, I think it was selected by like for the Library of Congress for whatever they, there's a phrase culturally, historically, yeah. you know, they preserve it for right. whatever reason. Significant. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I was actually a little, I was surprised that sort of in the post me too era, I don't know, is it like grandfathered in or maybe we can talk through some of that problematic <laughs> kind of stuff, but I was, I was, I was surprised by that. Well, I'll speak to that. First of all, I want to make clear, I, I'm not nostalgic for the 50s. I was not around <laughs> in the 1950s. So just, you know, to get that onto You're the record. You're not that old. Um, I'm not that old, right? And But, you know, that, that cultural significance and induction into the Library of Congress or recognition by the Library of Congress, I think we would be – the Library of Congress would be a lot smaller – if we were to judge the movies that get put into it um, based on those standards, right? Because a number of the movies that we've talked about on this podcast, I think, for example, Saturday Night Fever. I don't know when's the last time you guys watched that movie, but which I think was the first one we did on the podcast. Yeah, that's a rough, rough movie to watch these days through this lens, right? Especially the original R-rated version. Even The Breakfast Club, uh, which is another movie, you know, that people are nostalgic about. You go back and watch and you say, oh, wow, we don't do these things anymore, right? Uh, Fortunately. Uh, So it's, you know, I don't want to excuse a movie that's (laughs) so transgressive uh, as this one is at some points, uh, but it was a different era. I mean, I'll, I'll just... I will say that it was a very different era. Again, not to excuse any of this kind of behavior, but it was kind of viewed as sort of an innocent movie in those days, oddly enough. That's something I'm very eager to explore more uh, after we get to a few points. But before we do, TJ, just two questions for you. One, in all of these many, many wedding receptions, was there a favorite song or was there a favorite thing that people would do? Would they dance to it? Would they sing it themselves? Yeah, everybody's singing along with it. And usually it was the it was like a grease medley. So it was like a small portion of each of the songs sort of all woven together. Yeah, I, I, nothing specific stands out, probably because I've blocked it out because I heard it so many times at so many <laughs> wedding receptions. It just kind of got sick of it after a while. Also, my other question is, did you have an experience 
parallel to mine of women that you knew growing up loving and not just loving worshiping this film? Not so much. Actually, I, I went to a small high school. We didn't really have a theater program. So there wasn't any kind of a, it wasn't like we, you know, my high school staged Greece at one point. So there wasn't really that connection. And I was probably, I might be on the younger fringe of people. I, I don't know what the popularity of this movie is with the younger, you know, whatever millennials and Gen Z, are they into Greece? I, I don't think so. I think it's a movie that had its day. Right. And again, it was my generation into TJ's generation where it was really popular. And I don't think it's something that's part of the popular zeitgeist anymore. Although there's still sing-along Greece screenings that do very, very well. Oh, are and, there? Okay. And the stage production still does very, very well. Gotcha. Yeah. So this was basically a movie version of a musical, right? In a way that we don't see anymore, right? I can't think of a movie like this in the last 10 20 years at least that I've seen that is so clearly a musical set to film, right? TJ, uh, do, do you think of anything like it uh, since then? I think this is the last really successful musical of its era. You know, I saw a couple of lists that said Mamma Mia has made more money than Greece, but that's because of inflation. Yeah. Greece was kind of, I believe, the last hurrah of the era of Hollywood musicals and Hollywood musicals being a big genre. And it was the number one grossing movie of 1978. But yeah, it kind of died around the same time as the Western. They both kind of had their last gasps in the 70s. So let's see, uh, Greece. Let's, let's talk about the Enneagram perspectives on here, which characters sort of come out for us. And then we'll talk about some of the other um, things that we want to talk about, such as the drive-in experience. Tell me about uh, what clear Enneagram portrayals you saw in this movie, if any? I saw a lot of two. You know, for one thing, in a previous conversation, Mario, you had typed John Travolta as a transmitting two, which is not a typing I had heard or read anywhere else. He's uniformly typed as a three. And I had that in mind watching this. And for one thing, there's just not a doubt in my mind that not only is he a transmitter, he's one of the transmitting-ist transmitters <laughs> I've ever seen on screen. Like he just... Right pops and he radiates. Yes. And there's a good friend of mine who's worked as a journalist for a number of years. And he, part of his beat was to go to the Toronto Film Festival, where he'd be part of the, the number of journalists who would then interview different movie stars. And he described one time being in a room where everyone was pointed the other direction and John Travolta came in a door at the back and simultaneously everybody went whoosh and looked in that yeah. direction. He just had that magnetic charisma that there was just no substitute for. He described experiencing that with Patrick Swayze as well and with Claudia Schiffer. He said she practically had a theme mm. song playing when she walked in, in mm. silence. Mm. So the transmittingness of him in this movie just shines. I don't think Danny Zuko is a clear Enneagram type portrayal of a two, but I would guess that maybe that's John Travolta's two-ness coming into it, or maybe yeah. that really is the character. And then Sandy really strikes me as a preserving two, the kind of the classic nice girl two. The core of the movie itself is, will this couple get together? They love each other. There are various things pulling them apart. They're attracted to each other. Can they make it work? And then both of them tries to be what the other one wants in order to get love. Yeah, there was kind of an O. Henry sort of quality toward the ending there, right? Except that it wasn't tragic, um, which struck me. And I, I wrote down in my notes that uh, moral of the film is if you want to get the boy of your dreams, just completely turn against who you are at your core and uh, you know, change everything. everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah, be what he wants you to be. <laughs> yeah. So we'll come back to that because I do want to have a conversation about Travolta and this character and his Enneagram type. It's an interesting topic to me. Uh, so uh, TJ and Gracia, other than those two characters, did any Enneagram types stand out to you? Yeah, the first one that really popped for me was Patty Simcox, who's running for vice president. Uh, she goes around telling everyone she's been nominated. I got some pretty strong three vibes from there. Not only does she want to succeed in becoming vice president, she wants everyone to know that she's successful. So, that, I mean, it's a little bit of a caricature, but, you know, uh, this whole movie is yes. very, it's it's really a, 
all the characters are really caricatures of real kinds of people. It's right. very heightened. And yes, I don't know if that's just if that's a musical sort of thing in general or uh, just the nature of this film. So it, it was hard for me to get sort of a read on the characters. I felt like the most developed, I don't know about normal, but human sort of character was Rizzo. I connected with her, I think, more than any other character. And I wasn't sure. I read some just a few things about people typing her in different ways. I felt like I got some strong four vibes from her. Also a few eight vibes in a, in a few scenes. She, the song that's called, I forget the name of the song. It's like all the worst things I could do, or there are worse things I could do, something like that. She's got the line, I don't steal and I don't lie, but I can feel and I can cry. A fact that I'll bet you never knew, but to cry in front of you, that's the worst thing I could do. That feels very, there's some eight-ish stuff in there, I think. Like, you know, I'm not, you're not going to get through my armor. But also, as the leader of the Pink Ladies, I think in the first scene, they're all wearing pink, but she's got a black sweater she's got over the top of it or a black shirt underneath. There's something where it was like she wants to be differentiated from the group. She wanted to stand out. She wanted to be unique. So I got kind of some four vibes from that. I don't know that I could definitively type her character, but if I was going to try to pull some scenes from this movie, there's probably some good stuff I could get from Rizzo in particular. TJ Daw, what do you think about Rizzo? Oh, I think she's a, a pretty strong eight. Uh, navigating eight was my guess for her in that she's the queen bee. She knows it. She keeps the other pink ladies in their place. Uh, she lampoons Sandy's virginity and innocence with Sandy in the bathroom. Like she's pretty cavalier about what she feels. She throws a milkshake in Kinnicky's face in the diner scene. I would guess Kinnicky might be an eight as well. And the two of them as an on-again, off-again couple have that kind of like the electricity of two eights getting together, clashing, coming apart, fighting, having sex, <laughs> exchanging love, smashing apart, back together again. And her song, you know, as you mentioned, I think is very much does speak to the sensitive heart of an eight. And the eights walk around, especially in this kind of context, as I'm tough, don't mess with me. I say what I mean. I'm the leader and I know it. And then in private, they're actually really tender and soft. And I'm not going to let everybody see it, but it's there. I got feelings just like anybody else does. Yeah, I, I, I would go along with the eight assessment of Rizzo. Uh, for, for me, it was one of the clearer characters. Um, and there was the one line, again, you don't want to cherry pick just one line, but in addition to everything that you guys have said, uh, there was that line when uh, Sandy asks her if she's okay uh, when she's going through her pregnancy scare that miraculously clears itself up, fortunately. Um, you know, with just, oh, never mind, false alarm. But, um, and her response is, I can take care of myself and anybody else too, right? So there's that, you know, that independence, that self, that autonomy that AIDS have and this willingness to be the kind of protector and so forth. So I, I think that was a pretty strong eight-ish character. Yeah, the, the uh, also Kinnicky, you know, uh, somebody who's not an eight trying to play an eight, I think. Uh, Jeff Conway, for those of you old enough to remember the TV show Taxi, definitely not an eight in real life. I don't know what he was, but uh, so the actor was not. I think there were a number of eight-ish characters. Also, the uh, the leader of the other gang was certainly pretty eight-ish um, in, in his approach to things. Uh, see any other characters jump out at you guys? I think the T-Birds all together had a real seven-ish vibe. There's no differentiation between the different characters, but there's a <laughs> lot of pulling pranks. There's a lot of excitement about getting laid. There's a lot of like looking up the yeah. skirts of girls, the bleachers or doing three yeah. stooges stuff and laughing at their own antics, mooning the cameras when there's the broadcast <laughs> from their school. So yeah. the, the seven-ishness of the T-Birds was a big Enneagram theme in the movie altogether, which I believe symbolizes just the, the effervescing excitement of youth. Not that everybody yes. experiences that as a youth, but that's yes. definitely the aspect of youth that they really want to present in this movie, among others. Yeah, youth nostalgia, certainly, even from the opening credits, right? I started to make notes of all the uh, nostalgia included in the opening credits and it was just endless i mean uh just you know one fond memory of the you know whitewashed memory of the 50s after another right uh you know over and over again so uh, yeah I, that, that seven ish sort of quality 
permeates as uh, along with a two-ish quality to the pink ladies i think uh to get back to your original point tj about the two-ness uh through here i think the principal uh principal mcgee uh i think her name was um kind of a one-ish character in my view right probably a transmitting one sort of character and um uh, <laughs> coach calhoun any any uh <laughs> Played by the great Sid Caesar. Uh, any thoughts on Coach Calhoun's Enneagram type? Well, he doesn't really, they don't give him that much to do, especially given what right. a virtuoso Sid Caesar was. And it's crazy to, to think that this wasn't too long after the peak of his popularity. In right. It would be like resurrecting some comedy star from the mid 2000s now right. to shake the dust off of them and have them do their thing. The one, the one scene that I thought he really shined in was in the bonfire at the pep rally when he's talking about how we're going to rip them and then we're going to slaughter them. And, you know, he was just having great fun making a meal out of these violent words. So that – and then the fact that he's a coach and he's a phys ed teacher, uh, right. you know, all of that implies eight. Not necessarily yeah. a, a perfect rendition of an eight or certainly not a well-rounded one. And he's a minor character. And I right. wouldn't be surprised if Sid Caesar was an eight in real life. Oh, interesting, really. Yeah. Sid Caesar, the great early TV actor. I mean, the people don't know about him now, but boy, back in the 50s and 60s, he was a big deal. He was one of the true legends in early uh, television. That role was originally supposed to be played by a porn star named Harry Reams. And, and, and the, the producers are, you know, eventually decided that, no, that will hurt us in the Southern United States Bible Belt when it comes to the box office. So they had him replaced. So to go from a, I don't know, I, I don't, I'd never heard of Harry Reams before. Uh, I don't know if he was a thing, uh, you know, in popular culture at the time, but to go from that to Sid Caesar was really an interesting part of casting, I thought. Another casting piece of trivia that I found fascinating, the original choice for uh, the Danny Zuko character was none other than Henry Winkler. Uh, who played <laughs> Arthur Fonzarelli in Happy Days, the original greaser. But uh, Henry Winkler was afraid of being typecast, so he turned down the role. There were also some interesting potential casts for Sandy. Carrie Fisher, Susan Day from the Partridge family, and Anne Margaret, which <laughs> leads me to the age of these characters. I mean, <laughs> this is probably the most egregious example of high schoolers being played by people who may have had children in high school at this point. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> if you look at the kids on the basketball team, one of them was balding. Right. I mean, <laughs> they've just been held back a few years. <laughs> right. So Stockard Channing, who played Rizzo, was 30 at the time this movie was made. 33. Oh, was it 33? Really? Oh, interesting. Okay. And, and they literally had uh, crow's feet checks on the actors to make sure that you couldn't see the wrinkles around their eyes and they would fuzz out, you know, or do a hazy lens on some of the scenes if it was needed. So... <laughs> If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one -on -one consulting on creative projects of all kinds as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. You know, one of the things about this movie, I mean, this movie was clearly a fantasy, but it also speaks to the idea of self-delusion and fooling ourselves and filling our heads with stories about how the world is, right? So um, I, I think, you know, because again, we, we, you know, we try to, this is about the Enneagram and how the Enneagram plays into these things. But I do think that a lot of this movie is related to kind of what our personality does for us 
which is to create this illusion uh, about how the world is and how we are in it, to idealize ourselves, right, and cover up kind of some of the self-loathing that we feel underneath or the anxiety we feel about ourselves or the insecurities that we feel. And I think this movie does a good job at hinting at, if nothing else, some of those insecurities and some of this need uh, from a, you know, just to get through life to become something that we're not. And certainly in Danny, we see that. So let's talk about Danny Zuko. Let's talk about John Travolta a bit more uh, and his character. Uh, who wants to start? Not it. <laughs> so, so, so I'll be it here. T.J. Daw, you were saying that, um, you know, you were talking about John Travolta and his charisma. Now, again, I am old enough to remember the TV show Welcome Back, Cotter, when it started, right? Um, you know, that was my Friday night. Welcome back, Cotter. Happy days, the Partridge family, all those sort of things. Love American style, I still remember. Uh, but I usually had to go to bed before that came on. Um, and fr right from the get-go, he was a huge star. And it was because of that charisma, right? It was because, you know, if you ever go back and watch Welcome Back, Cotter, it's not a very good show, like most of those kind of sitcom shows that end up airing on a Friday night. But there was something about that guy that just jumped off the screen, right? He had those incredible eyes. He had that amazing chin. But there's almost a feminine energy to his sexuality, Right. Um, you know, he's not a brooding Russell Crowe type at his peak or even a, you know, Mel Gibson sort of guy. There's a, a and I think that's one of the reasons why this movie was so popular among girls of that age. Right. And for me, that speaks back to the two ish thing. OK. And not to equate two ness with feminine, you know, being feminine or anything or but that there's an openness and a sensitivity and a, I don't know, an emotional rawness and this ability to be receptive that comes with Enneagram Type 2 that I think John Travolta embodied at his best. Couldn't agree more, particularly because the character is the leader of a gang of greasers. So if that role had been played by an eight, like somebody who's an eight in real life, it would have had a very different energy. And I'm reminded of how... 20 years ago, I lived with a roommate who was a woman in her 40s who had a nine-year-old daughter who, at the time, had the world's biggest crush on Leonardo DiCaprio. And my roommate was describing her take on that, which was Leo, at that age, you know, having really shot into fame for Titanic, looked pretty feminine. He, he looked kind of boyish, kind of soft, so not threatening to a, a young girl's sensibilities. And I think that's a lot of what Travolta has in this movie, is he's the bad boy but he's also soft and approachable and he's tough and he's capable and he can win the drag race. Uh, and all, you know, all the other greasers respect him and everything like that. But at the same time, he'll open his heart and you know that deep down he's good and soft and loving and caring and really does love and care about Sandy and wants to be with her. So it's very easy to project that as my ideal partner is somebody who's got these masculine qualities and, but is also sensitive and tender and loving and that I can reach that isn't quite threatening. And boy, can he dance. <laughs> he can really dance. He can genuinely dance. He moves his hips like no man should be able to, quite <laughs> frankly. <you know? laughs> so from an, from an old white guy who would sit, you know, in the chairs when the uh, Grease medley started to play, you know, uh, at, at, at TJ's weddings there. Um, so, uh, yeah, so th there's... Um, <laughs> I forget where I was going to go with this. Oh, good grief. Uh, I, I had a point I was going to make, but... Uh, Just think about so, John Travolta's you know, hips and that'll come back to you. <laughs> Here's the point I wanted to make with this is that, I, you know, the, the Enneagram is so permeated with stereotypes, right? And uh, so we tend to think that, you know, eights are like this, you know, they're they're tough and hard and they don't have a soft side and sevens are just party animals and they're not smart and twos are, you know, oh, just helpers and can't be anything beyond that. But I think what I like about this portrayal, and again, it's not a pure uh, Enneagram portrayal. It's kind of almost like a, um, a three-ish 
role played by a two or something you know it's kind of a mix there but but what to your point tj about this being the leader of the greasers right and you know somebody playing at least at being a tough guy and all these things is not what we normally associate with enneagram type two but there's a lot of twos out there who are like this, who are leaders, who are assertive people, who are aggressive in the world, and I'm sure are pretty tough people, right, in a lot of ways. I like this as kind of a, a deflating of some of the stereotypes of twos. And then part of how that comes into it is in that moment when he's reunited with Sandy unexpectedly, and his instinctive response is that he's thrilled to see her. His heart is on his sleeve. He's telling her how excited he is to see her. And then suddenly he catches himself and becomes aware of the fact that he's surrounded by the other T-birds and what must they think of me? So there's this twist perception of, do I be who I really am or do I be yes. what others want me to be? And he succumbs yes. to what the rest of the gang wants him to be as well as the girls watching. It's like, what's my reputation in the school? Oh, I'm, I'm the cool guy. And then he feigns cool. He pretends that he's indifferent to Sandy being there. Ah, and then he starts giving this kind of like rock and roll uh, Shamalama talk just as a way of like distancing myself from my feelings because that's what I need to be to maintain my role as the leader. So that would definitely be an element going on in the heart and mind of any two who's in a leadership uh, role yeah. in life, whether it's in an organization or among their friends. Yeah. And I think there may be people out there who would uh, make the argument, well, that's a three-ish sort of behavior of adapting to the environment, that sort of thing. But the reality is, is that threes tend to be consistent in the role they're playing, right? I mean, they might shift a bit, but they're crafting an ideal role that they want to play, whereas the two is much more likely to shape shift on the drop of a dime, right? And we see this uh, throughout the movie with Danny, like you said. Uh, for me, uh, one of the most indicative ones was the scene at the jukebox in the diner where, um, you know, she walks in and she's with Lorenzo, the young Lorenzo Lamas, who was uh, kind of a big TV star for about five minutes in the 90s. Uh, but, um, you know, and he's playing it tough, like you said, and then he sneaks around the other direction so he could be there. And he's just got this hangdog, you know, look on his face, this, uh, this puppy filled with desire, you know, wanting to, 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 to see her and to talk to her. And it is that switching back and forth, like you say. Yeah, just it's sort of ironic that scene where he meets, sees Sandy, realizes she's back at the school, is initially wants to be connected with her, but then realizes sort of the peer pressure and then plays the tough guy again. The T-Birds, all they're concerned about is getting the girl and trying to hook up. And so it's like he's got this perfect connection with her, but yet he can't go there. I know there's, there's something ironic about that, that when one of them gets it, it's like, I don't know, there's a weakness in there or something. Maybe it's more the relational connection that he has with her. That's what he's concerned about. If it was more of a surface level yes. physical connection yes. or something, then that's acceptable in the, in the peer yes. group, but you can't be too connected. Yeah, there's something very similar in this character and the character from Saturday Night Fever, where it's there's this pursuit of the woman, but this actual resistance to easy sex ironically, right? Um, where it's, you know, it is about the relationship and the romance and that sort of thing for him. But he has to put on this front that, no, it's just about the sex. Uh, so it's an interesting overlap in the characters there, I thought. When he has his solo song, The Drive-In, that's when he's not being observed. So he's just hard on his sleeve. And the song is all about, I'm sad because I don't have my love. I'm in misery, made a start, now we're apart, there's nothing left for me, love has flown all alone, I sit and wonder why you left me, oh Sandy, Sandy baby. So just yearning for my beloved. And Sandy has a pretty similar song early on about how I'm hopelessly devoted to you. There's just no getting over you, I know I'm just a fool, fool's willing to sit around and wait for you, but baby can't you see, it's nothing else for me to do, I'm hopelessly devoted to you. My head is saying fool forget him, my heart is saying don't let go hold on till the end. And that's what I intend to do, hopelessly devoted to you. So you've got these two leads who are just pining for each other. And at least in solitude, they're able to let that out 
of like, I am all about wanting love, wanting to find love, wanting to connect with my love. And there's these little impediments in the way that might be internal or external. But my whole life is devoted to finding and connecting with my beloved. You mentioned the scene at the drive-in. So let's talk about the drive-ins for uh, those people who have no idea what a drive-in is, or at least what the experience of going to the drive-in is. TJ, talk about drive-ins. So drive-ins were movie theaters where you would drive in your car and listen to the soundtrack of the movie on your radio or on a radio that was provided to your car. And there was a snack bar. You could go out and get snacks, then come back. And everybody watched the movie on a big screen together. And movies were usually shown two at a time, if not more. And the second movie and the movies that might follow later were B-movies. They were bad. Uh, horror movies were very popular at drive-ins because that was an excuse for your girlfriend to get scared and jump into your arms. So there was a lot of making out and there was a lot of sex that famously happened at drive-ins. I don't know if that actually happened because they were before my time, but that's the mythos of the drive-in, which they certainly go into in this movie. And in this yeah. movie, if it's to be believed... There wasn't actually much movie watching going on. It was everybody seemed to be just walking back and forth to the snack bar and hanging out. Yeah. Um, have either of you guys ever been to a drive-in theater? A couple times, yeah. I've been to one once. Oh, really? Okay. All right. Good. Um, so again, drive-ins were a thing when I was uh, when I was young. When I was in high school, they were very popular, and uh, I saw this movie as well as Grease Two in a drive-in. And that kind of was what it was like, right? I mean, you know, at least as a social activity. Um, that was a bit extreme, I think, but, um, you know, it was a social activity. Now, when I was young, I would go with my parents. So, of course, we'd go in there to watch the Disney movies and that sort of thing, but to really watch the movies and then fall asleep when, because it would, would be, it would be a G-rated movie to start, and then the kids fall asleep in the back seat and the, you know, the adults watch the PG movie or, you know, whatever. That's how I saw the outlaw Josie Wales. It was, uh, uh, I think it was playing with, uh, Herbie, the love bug or something like that of that same era, you know? So, uh, so Herbie, Herbie was for me. And then I stayed awake to watch, um, uh, you know, the outlaw Josie Wales, but it was a social sort of environment, right? It was about, again, connecting. Uh, there was a lot of romance that would happen, but it was a great, social experience for people and that so again for me this movie is all about nostalgia right nostalgia for the drive-ins nostalgia for diners nostalgia for an innocence in a way okay um that um i, I don't know that that necessarily has anything with, to do with type two but uh certainly a theme you can't overlook in this movie i saw a lot of type nine with the nostalgia you know it's it's this well for one thing the 50s were kind of nine-ish. Like Eisenhower is often typed as a nine. I don't know enough about him to and say for sure. And I think he sure. was. I've, yeah. I've read some biographies. I think he was. And in this particular rendition of the 50s, there's no Cold War paranoia. There's no Red Scare. There's no racism. There's maybe one black person in the entire movie in the band. Yeah, that's uh, right. The gangs are pretty toothless. It's kind of like a Disney version of what a, of what a street yeah. gang was like at the time. As well, it's also a pretty rosy picture of high school. There doesn't seem to be any classwork, <laughs> any homework, no exams, almost no teachers, no parents. Everything works out. Nobody has a thought to college or life after high school until the very end when they just say, we'll all stay together. But like, it's a stress-free high school experience. And uh, I will say that the, probably the only person who seemed to be having a tough time in high school was Eugene, the, uh, the Jerry Lewis-inspired nerd uh, in the movie. But even that wasn't uh, so awful. Uh, Played by Eddie Deason, who's a classic uh, nerd. I think this might have been his first role, but famously played an endless oh, really? string of nerds and various such characters over the next few decades. <laughs> Bullying and sexual harassment are presented in a pretty lighthearted way in this movie. Yes. Multiple yes. times. As yes. if like, oh, it's all in good fun. Yeah, again, gets to the problematic nature of a lot of uh, these movies from this era and earlier, right? There's uh, certainly things that would not be made today. And fortunately, times have changed, um, you know, for the better in a lot of these ways. I think this is where this particular element of this movie and of any pop culture artifact that hasn't aged that well, which Greece is far from unique in that respect, I think is reflective of the fact that culture is dynamic and that we as individuals are dynamic. And not only is it okay, it's actually beneficial to look back 
at what were things that were okay in the past, whether it's culturally or just for me, whether it's a message that I received from outside or a message that I had internalized and told myself. And having some distance with that and being able to have dialogue about that, even with myself of like, where did that message come from? How did that play out in my life? Do I still believe that in some part? Do I want to? Is that serving me? Is there a better message that I can replace that with? Which is the whole point of learning about the Enneagram. Not simply to say, is Danny Zuko a two or anything like that, but what's going on with me? And yes. how have I changed from the time that I was when I was young and I love this thing that has messages that I'm not on board with anymore? Hmm. And what is the dynamicism within me as a person, within my understanding of myself and my relation to the world? How has that changed between then and now? And how can that continue to change as I go forward? Because that journey's never done. Which, so, uh, you know, but for me, you know, this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. This movie, like so many of the era, come from an age of monoculture that we do not have now, right? We have such a fragmented cultural environment where if you have, you know, a million views on a TV show, it's considered successful. Right. Uh, whereas you compare that to something like the, uh, the the finale of MASH. I talked to a woman, young woman the other day who didn't know who Alan Alda was, for example. But, you know, the finale of MASH was watched by 86 million viewers. Right. Which just simply does not happen now. So for me, one of the things about this movie that I am feeling nostalgia for is that it was a cultural phenomenon, really unlike anything we see today, right? Um, so that, that made me sad because, you know, there are so many times when we talk to people and it's hard to find the same cultural touchstones, right? And again, uh, this, you know, brings me back to the Enneagram in a way and what you were saying, TJ, um, about, you know, uh, using it as a tool to look for at ourselves. And I think the way we interact with culture is something very similar and culture can really bring us together in ways that few things can and i think as a society we miss not having those same cultural touchstones as a humanizing element of the way we interact with each other anymore so we're going to try and remedy that with upcoming episodes of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, right? Get our millions and millions of listeners watching the same movie and having the same conversation <laughs> as we go forward. So, uh, but before we before we embark on the that, uh, any final thoughts on Greece, guys? One that comes to mind for me is just how really wondering was it ever even remotely like that for anyone? In that on the first day of school, they have a pep rally and a bonfire and Sandy being, a, you know, it's her first day of class. She's already a cheerleader. And then on the last day of school, they have a carnival with full on rides with cotton candy machines, with different contests and things like that. Like, was that anybody's high school experience anywhere ever? Well, it certainly wasn't mine. The only similarity between my high school years and this movie was that people smoked in high school uh, during my era. So uh, we actually had a smoking area uh, in the courtyard in our high school. But uh, beyond that, uh, you know, there was not a whole lot of similarities to my high school. But it does fit in with what I was saying before about casting actors who are older than the roles in that if you're younger than a teenager and you're watching this growing up, all of that just makes your teenage years seem like such a thrill ride compared to how mundane it is to be a little kid when you don't have any autonomy, when you don't have an adult's body, when you can't drive, when you can't go on dates, when you don't have money, that kind of thing, when you're completely under your parents' thumb. I don't think that there's a single parent anywhere in this movie. Like you, you, you just don't see one. Yeah. And so... To imagine that that's going to be my life as well as a carnival on the last day of school and pep rallies with a bonfire and like burning the burning somebody in effigy and all this thing. It just makes it seem, again, it's very seven. It's like, it's going to be so amazing when I get there. Yeah. It's going to be so, and I'm going to fall in love. Yeah, great point. TJ and Gracia, any final thoughts? Um, I think it was probably a shame that I had never seen this movie before. I think, you know, if you're going to be part of the culture, you have to engage with that a little bit. I have now seen this movie. I will never see it again, and I'm happy to move on. <laughs> 
I will say as a final thought on, on to your point, because the, first, you know, again, you know, we've talked about how, you know, we often watch these movies twice prior to this and have often, at least, you know, for a lot of these seen them before at the, um, after watching it the first time earlier this week, I wanted to strangle, uh, TJ Daw for recommending <laughs> this movie because I knew I had to sit through it again. Uh, but as I watched it the second time, you know, I, I, I was willing to play along, right? And it seemed like the makers of the movie were kind of in on the joke, right? They knew what they were making. They knew that it was a piece of pop. The actors, you could see John Travolta when he was strutting around with this hyper-exaggerated, bizarre strut, you know, almost in certain scenes, that they were just having fun. And, you know, all the Me Too stuff aside, very legitimate concerns, I think that was the point of this movie, that let's, let's just have fun, right? And uh, so if we take it in that light, I, th I think it, it works, and, you know, certainly it worked at the time. So, um, but we're going to move on to something wholly different with the next movie. Uh, the next movie is uh, uh, T.J. Gracia. I believe it's one of your picks, correct? Yes, Birdman. Birdman, yes. Um, anything you want to say about why you picked Birdman before we wrap up? Oh, man, so many things. Well, we'll get into it in the next episode. But uh, if I had to pick one thing off the top of my head, uh, I am enamored with long takes in films. And this film is shot in such a way that it's made to look like the entire film is one long take. So uh, if for no other reason than that, it's one of my favorites. TJ Daw, any thoughts about Birdman? You know, I watched it on Friday, and I'm going to watch it again before we do our recording. To my mind, it's identical to Grease. I really don't see any difference in terms of <laughs> the artistic quality or the Enneagram tones in it. It's the same movie. I'll give you that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing Birdman. Uh, I, you know, I haven't seen it since we were, uh, since it was in the theater and, uh, you know, remember enjoying quite a bit. So listener, if you are preparing, if you're listening to this podcast in real time, the day it's being published, you have a week to watch Birdman, uh, prior to next week's episode. Guys, thanks for joining us. This was the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media. 